Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. Thrive Live with my good friend, Dr. Lise Allschuler. Today, we're going to be talking about clinical trials, which is a very important topic uh, to many people diagnosed with cancer. But before we begin, I'd like to thank the sponsors who make this show possible. First, Cetria Glutathione. Glutathione is the master antioxidant in the body's primary defense against free radicals. It also helps support respiratory health. Cetria is a patented form of glutathione clinically proven to raise blood glutathione levels. For more information, visit cetriaglutathione.com. Also, Dr. O'Hara's Probiotics. It's a best-selling probiotic for more than 30 years, and it contains 12 probiotic strains that are shelf-stable so no refrigeration is required because of a unique three-year fermentation process. It's a very effective probiotic. Learn more at drohiraprobiotics.com. So my guest tonight is one of my favorites. Dr. Tina Kayser is a naturopathic oncologist and also the editor-in-chief of the Natural Medicine Journal, which is a peer-reviewed publication for doctors that I founded back in 2009, and Dr. Kayser has been with me ever since. Dr. Kayser is also the creator of Roundtable Cancer Care, an excellent resource for people diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Kayser, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me, Carolyn. Good to be here. Yeah, I know that you talk to your patients a lot about clinical trials, so that's why I invited you. Um, So first of all, let's start real basic. What is a clinical trial? A clinical trial at its very base is an accepted scientific method to assess a treatment. Um, It can be a new treatment. It can be an older treatment. So every new drug out there goes through clinical trials, and there's a process, and we'll talk about that. Um, it can be an old therapy, something like acupuncture, for example, can can be studied in a clinical trial to assess it. And I'm using the word assess in a very generic way because um, what they're assessing depends on the phase of the clinical trial. So clinical trials have phases. There's four phases total. Um, so depending on the phase of the trial determines what they're trying to assess with the study design. You, can I jump right into that, Carolyn? Yeah, because I think, I, you know, it would be good to know about these four phases because that wasn't even a question on my radar, so I'm glad that you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, phase one, well, we'll start at the beginning, right? Phase one, it's generally a small group of people, less than 100 certainly. Um, sometimes it's just a few dozen people. And what phase one trials are designed to do is to look at the safety and the toxicity of a given treatment or compound. Um, so they use various doses of a drug or they might do various um, renditions of a therapy just to see the tolerance level and they figure out the toxicity and in the process of doing that they might study what it's doing in the body as well. You know, it's, it's kinetics in the body, we call it, right? Like how fast the body gets rid of it, does it go through the liver, etc. 
Um, ultimately, often the highest tolerated dose um, in, that they find in phase one allows them to design a phase two study with, you know, what they think is the most operable dose, right? They're not looking at effect, uh, effectiveness of the therapy in phase one. They're just looking at safety, really. Phase mm-hmm. two, the number of people can be, I don't know, 100 to 300 participants generally, somewhere in that range. And again, the side effects are being assessed just like they do in the first, you know, the phase one. But unlike phase one and phase two clinical trials, there is some assessment on whether the treatment has promise for a given condition. So, for example, in cancer care, that might mean tracking some biomarkers in the blood or results on a CT scan. Um, it's not definitive information. It's not what, you know, a drug would be approved on a phase two trial. That's not going to happen. But it can inform and even be combined with a phase three trial or a gold standard phase three trial is generally it's at least many hundreds and even thousands of patients. Um, although not always, you know, there's some rare cancers that that's not possible with. But in general, this, is a, this has the highest population, except for the next one we'll talk about. Um, and phase three, three trials are designed to assess um, the new treatment against standard of care often, at least when we're talking about cancer treatments. Um, in cancer treatments, often if you're assessing a treatment, you don't want to go up against a placebo because it's simply not ethical to withhold a treatment that is already standard of care. Um, and the placebo treatment against another treatment might be used for something like a side effect. So you want to see if you have less neuropathy, if you take a given drug or a given agent or do some acupuncture. That's okay because generally there's nothing approved for neuropathy anyway. So there is no standard of care for that. So that might be done. Um, And then phase four in the final phase is actually once um, it's on the market. Phase four is considered the final and, you know, once a drug is approved, drugs are the model, right? This is all based on drugs. I mean, we, we push our natural therapies kind of into this drug-based model. It's not the ideal model to even study our medicine, but that's a whole nother discussion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a phase four, a phase four study is uh, once a, an agent is being used and it's, it's still continually being monitored for safety, monitored for side effects and effectiveness. And that phase four does have ways that people report, doctors can report reactions and that is tracked as well. But that's marketed, it's on the market, people are getting that treatment and it's approved for use. So that's considered phase four. Yeah, that's great. And I love how you you took us through how we're first looking at safety and then how, how the numbers increase. Uh, So um, as we go through that, um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this subject is I was actually researching a clinical trial for my own personal health condition. It's it's not cancer. It's alopecia universalis, uh, which there are no treatments for at all. Um, And I found a clinical trial. uh, It was a phase three clinical trial with a very promising drug. And as you mentioned, it's using a drug for other autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. now for alopecia. So it's an existing drug, but it's being tested and studied for another condition. So I, I found that interesting. So it's not necessarily, oh, this is a brand new drug that's never been used before. Um, that's not the case with all clinical trials then. Right, right. And that's actually one of the one of the services I do for folks is exactly that. They'll be using a drug that's approved for another condition or another type of cancer, and they want to you know, they have a clinical trial available or I'll find a clinical trial where that drug is being used, not approved for the use of a given of the patients, whatever their cancer is. Um, but there's a lot of information on its safety, its, its effect on the human body, what to expect from it, what organ systems and how it's metabolized. I mean, that's kind of a nice 
spot to be when you're going to enter a clinical trial because you have so much information on that agent because it's already used for other conditions. So you can know exactly what you are signing up for. That's actually a good scenario, I think. Um, a good example of when a clinical trial is very appropriate. Yeah, I would agree. And the fact that you offer that service to your patients is really uh, amazing because I had to do it on my own. Um, and it's pretty arduous and time consuming. And, um, you know, and the interesting thing, I got turned down for the clinical trial uh, because of my age. Um, the trial was very specific. Um, it was 18 to 50. I'm 59. So I got turned down. Um, however, that I, I think, um, to manage listeners expectations, I want to talk about some of these things. Like why, mm -hmm. why, what's another reason why somebody would get turned down, uh, for a, a clinical trial? Why would they not qualify for a clinical trial? You know, once a clinical, there's a lot that goes on to create the protocol for a clinical trial. And the protocol is just a, you know, just basically the rules of the clinical trial, who is allowed on it, who's not allowed on there. And those criteria are called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. And, you know, it's a long, it's probably many, many months, if not many years to get to that point to outline that. And it's done by a lot of different people. And by the time you are looking at it online as a protocol, it's also gone through an IRB, the Institutional Review Board, which is a very a varied array of professionals who get together and make sure that it's an ethical study to do on the participants. Um, in any case, the inclusion criteria um, and the exclusion criteria are laid out and they are set in stone. They do not bend those rules. So online, when you're looking at clinical trials, if you see that it's only ages up to 50, I mean, you can, <laughs> you can call the research coordinator uh, who's listed on that page or whomever and, and ask if there is any doctor who's, you know, treating um, patients with that given agent. Because I will say that, you know, I am one of those persistent people who's like, well, you might not be available for the trial, but it's an FDA approved agent. Maybe there are physicians who are using it and they use it a lot and know enough that they're willing to do an off trial, you know, clinical study with you, study in air quotes there, because um, mm -hmm. they're not going to track you. Does that make right. sense? It does. It totally makes sense. And, and you know, that's actually what I did. Um, I, I did contact somebody, talk to somebody, and it was set in stone. I think you bring up a really good point that the criteria is very strict. And also the criteria or the protocol used in the clinical trial is very strict. So if someone is accepted into a clinical trial, how important is it that they follow all of the rules of the trial? And can you give us uh, an example of a rule that may need to be followed in a uh, oncology clinical trial? Yeah, I think, well, in my world, the most important rules to be followed are those that are, are, are we don't want the patient to do anything or the participant in the clinical trial do anything that could skew the results of the trial, right? So when, when people do that, like, for example, I'll stick to that peripheral neuropathy idea. Let's just say they are looking at an agent, a drug for peripheral neuropathy, and I have decent evidence that I can probably help that neuropathy or prevent neuropathy from a given chemotherapy drug based on lesser evidence, right? So it might not be phase three, you know, placebo-controlled trial that I have, but I know from 20 years of experience and, and, and the trials that we do have, which might be a phase two and some cohort studies out there, which are totally different, um, I might feel confident that we can prevent, say, a platinum-based chemotherapy agent that causes neuropathy, we can prevent it or at least reduce it with vitamin E. I, and I know that this person's on a clinical trial that's, you know, looking at that, I would, you know, of course, I would never want to skew the results. Um, 
and I would say that for most natural agents, like when people sign up for clinical trials, generally speaking, they're also limiting um, what else they should be doing um, as far as agents go, nutraceuticals, supplements, that kind of thing, or else it kind of messes up with the data and they might not get valid data. And, you know, that's what that criteria is for, is to get data, right? It's, it's, they make it strict on purpose because they don't want what are called confounders. Confounders are any of the kind of, I don't know, uncontrolled things that, you know, might mess up the data and send it into a direction that's not valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point. Um, and I think that that's why they monitor it so closely because if if somebody isn't following the rules of the, the clinical trial and it does skew the results, that'll be caught, you know, and that will delay the process and potentially re- approving that drug. And, you know, so when you're participating in a clinical trial, I mean, you're really participating in research. You're, you're really trying to help the field and you're trying to help, uh, you know, discover something that's going to help somebody else's cancer. And, and I, I kind of look at it like that, um, which to me, that's, that's kind of a, a pro of a clinical trial that you're, that you're helping. Um, so, but what are some of the pros in joining a clinical trial? Why would uh, a patient of yours think it's a good idea? Well, the most, the most common reason is, you know, they've tried a lot of other treatments and there's not a lot available for them. And I, I consider clinical trials as, you know, looking at the horizon. What is coming over the horizon and can we get to it before it's approved for use? And there's life-saving um, clinical trials, new agents or, or therapies, often immune therapies, that, you know, if you were the first ones on the clinical trial, you got in early before it was approved, um, you know, even Gleevec, Gleevec is an old drug for, or currently still used drug, but about two, the year 2000 or so, I uh, was very close to the institution that did a lot of the major research on that, um, which was at in Portland. And uh, Gleevec was one of the first kind of targeted agents that, that ch- completely changed the trajectory for those people with chronic myelogenous leukemia. It was um, 100% fatal before that drug hit the market. And then, you know, here we are talking to patients 5, 10, 15 years after being on that clinical trial. And the ones who were on the clinical trial, you know, if they had gotten standard of care in their community and not been on that trial, they wouldn't have been talking to me 10 years later. So, I mean, those are, that's profound, right? And that's, I'm always looking for those treatments. What's the next one? What's the next one? And immunotherapies are kind of my area of, um, I, I scan the literature for that a lot. Not that they're... Uh, you know, not that they're a silver bullet of any kind, but it's also very naturopathic, right? I mean, most immune therapies, a lot of the immune therapies just unlock your own immune potential, which, you know, philosophically, I really, you know, I jive with that idea. (laughs) Absolutely. You bring such a good point. I mean, one of the pros for sure is hope. Mm -hmm. Hope in cases where, you know, the, the, prognosis and the diagnosis is very challenging. Um, so I, I definitely think that's a, a pro. So what are some of the cons when it comes to joining a clinical trial? I think we already touched on the biggest con, and that is the constraints. Um, you know, I'm also a, a, I'm a avid proponent of integrative um, medicine. And by integrative, you literally you integrate conventional and natural, um, or orthodox and unorthodox, whatever you want to call it, um, and I think that sometimes clinical trials, especially when there are treatments that are already effective in the conventional realm, there's no need to go and do anything not known or experimental. I feel like standard of care is often combined with 
natural agents and interventional medicine, integrative medicine rather, um, that is probably the best bet for a lot of people because it allows you to integrate. I mean, the, 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 the constraint is not being able to take a lot of natural agents or take doing your acupuncture or, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's a biggie. Um, I would say that's a biggie. The other uh, con for me it, when I was considering the clinical trial was getting the placebo mm-hmm. um, because I was reading the results. Uh, this the, We're now in phase three trials with this particular treatment and the results, the efficacy is really high. Um, so I, I was kind of concerned about getting the, the placebo. So you know, do you find that your patients are, that they have that concern or are you dealing with trials that are mostly uh, comparing against standard of care? Most of the time it's standard of care stuff. And if it was a placebo trial, and there, I have had a few of those and they've been, um, you know, when someone's going to be in, in what we call a watchful waiting period or an active surveillance period. So they're not getting treatment anyways, right? So it's either maintain that or go on this clinical trial and possibly get this other agent that might be of benefit. Um, that's probably the only scenario in which, so it doesn't change their care at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's already evidence, decent evidence and a decent toxicity profile that shows that an agent is not highly toxic, I probably would advocate for, for the patient to do what you did, which is find um, a physician who is open and experienced to using that agent in your case because once an agent is FDA approved it can be used by a doctor for any reason that the doctor uh, designates it doesn't have to be used for that condition the only caveat of course is insurance may balk and not pay Mm -hmm. for it yeah yeah exactly so so why do we have placebo control trials and why why are they considered the gold standard you know I I was thinking about that, about placebos in general, and there's a lot of mixed reviews on this, of whether it's necessary or not. Some countries don't allow it. Um, in any case, there, there's some evidence that ta- the act of taking something solicits, solicits an effect, right? So no matter what it is, it's a sugar pill, it's a you know capsule with some <laughs> flour in it, I don't know, even taking a placebo pill, any placebo pill um, can have an effect, and the effect can be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So that varies between 20 and 30 percent in a lot of trials. So reportedly it's 20, 30 percent. It depends what kind of symptoms you're tracking. Um, but without that and you're comparing it to nothing, then you've lost the act of the placebo. Right. So so if taking a pill solicits an effect, you're trying to control for that event by putting the placebo in, in, the, in a second arm. Mm-hmm. So you're comparing like you're taking, I don't know, we'll say a, a vitamin E capsule and then you have a, an empty capsule that looks just like it but it doesn't have vitamin E in it, um, that's a much better comparison because the actual act of taking that capsule and thinking that it may do you good probably does have some effect. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it is uh, It is kind of an interesting conversation about, about the placebo effect. Um, you know, just prior to uh, coming on the air with you, I was going through the journals that I read fairly regularly, and there was a, a paper in JAMA about... Um, post-trial care in oncology and the fact that we're not doing such a great job if in fact somebody has to withdraw or or they can't complete the trial or even if they do complete the trial um, that uh, we're not doing such a great job managing the emotions and the care 
of that treatment post-trial. I'm just curious about, that's the first I had heard of a concern regarding post-trial uh, patients. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there is, that is a huge, I'm glad that they're writing about it first of all in JAMA. Mm -hmm. It's a huge consideration. Um, sometimes people can step out of a trial and when someone consents to join a clinical trial as a participant, everyone always has the right to leave the trial anytime for any reason. There is no, you know, it's not like a, a ride where you get on, you can't get off till it ends. You know, you can step out of that trial at any point along the way. And that's a really important thing to realize. Uh, and that's all laid out in front of people. Um, so sometimes people do step off the trial and they should track that better, right? Because now you want to know what happened. What's, mm -hmm. you know, is it permanent? Did, did whatever happen, if it was due to a side effect, is that something that we need to be concerned about with that drug? That's huge. Mm -hmm. There's another scenario that I know of with immune therapies, at least early on, they had the clinical trials that were two years long and they would have a treatment and it's, you know, these protocols are written in stone pretty close, you know? And so after two years, even in the people that it was working for, they stopped using it. It wasn't an agent that was even available yet. Mm. That's kind oh. of a problem, right? There's an ethical oh, yeah. problem with that, a huge yeah. ethical problem. Um, but that's what happened. And this was back, you know, so many years ago, I'm hoping they've um, since then changed that. But I found that to be like a huge ethical lapse to to stop a treatment that was working simply because it's not an approved agent. Um, oh, I agree. In yeah. the case of the, the trial that I was looking at, um, you were given, uh, after the trial was done, participants were given the actual real drug if it was working um, for a set number of years after the trial. So they did, they didn't just leave you hanging. Uh, that's like good. You're, yeah. So that's, that's a little bit better. Um, how do patients typically found, find out about clinical trials? Is it, I mean, is this something where, you know, they should work with an expert in the area or, you know, they should just go online and start searching or what's your advice about that? You know, well, it depends on their, le on someone's level of, um, ability to go online and search this, first of all, um, and their time commitment, because it is a big time commitment. There are some ways that you could facilitate that online, though. So the first thing, the, the, as you mentioned, when you did your own research, I mean, it's, it can be really time consuming. And weighing through the criteria is really laborious, reading inclusion, exclusion criteria after criteria, um, and seeing if you fit and go to the next one. <laughs> it's really, yeah. there are automated ways of doing this online and there are um, some services online that can be taken advantage of. I mean, first of all, if someone doesn't know much about clinical trials in general and you want to just know the mechanics of it and learn more and the two best sites really are cancer.gov, which is the National Institutes of Health sponsored website and it has all of their clinical trials on there. It's fairly straightforward and simple. And the other is cancer.net, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology website. Those two are really like research, clinical trials 101, what, what the pros, the cons, what you get out of it, what they're designed for. So a lot of what we talked about, but in much more depth. Um, after that, I would consider one of the places to go to look for an actual trial, two places that I would say. The easier one of the two is cancerresearch.org, which is... Um, the Cancer Research Institute, and they even have a toll-free number for those people who don't want to sit at the computer and bang away at keys. Um, you can go there, get their toll-free number, talk to them. They will try to help you find a clinical trial that at least you qualify for. So you don't have to say, oh, I'm looking for a clinical trial to join. You can just, you know, kind of window shop the trials, 
have a service like that go through and help you figure out which ones you qualify for. And maybe you qualify for 10 different trials, but none of them look good right now to you. Well, now you know the process, right? And you can think about that for if you don't look, look at it again in six months or a year. The final site, and the one for those who are most intrepid, is clinicaltrials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov. That lists all the clinical trials going on in the country, um, publicly funded, privately funded. It goes beyond our borders. It actually has the whole world. I don't know if it's as thorough with the whole world. Um, I use it just for the United States. But um, that's the one where you can put in the very precise parameters for your particular cancer um, and kind of scan what's going on. It does help to know what you're looking for because there's so many clinical trials. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Um, so if you know what you're looking for, that can be really helpful. And they do have a map. So if you want to stay close to home, that will narrow your search considerably because you just click on the map and find your area and then see what's going on nearby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've used that site. It's really good. Great resources for sure. Now, what final advice do you have for listeners who may be considering a clinical trial? Um, I guess the final advice is, is don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask questions, and don't be afraid right up until the time you read a consent form to say, eh, I changed my mind. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no strong-arming people. There's no feeling of obligation to join it or stay on it, so you may as well find out what's out there. Like I said, window shopping is is okay, and it's free. It can be laborious, like I mentioned, but it's it's worth looking at. I think there are times for standard of care, and that's often when there's a, you know, a cure is on the table, for example, like standard of care already holds a good chance of a curative treatment. Um, I think that's a time that you probably don't have to look as hard. But I think it's good to look at clinical trials, even if it's just an observation, even if you're just joining so they can track you. Or in the case of, say, a, a um, I know that there's pre-viver um, trials that are doing MRIs and watching more closely when people are at high risk for cancer. They might be able to join a clinical trial that says, you know, they're going to watch you more closely because of your hereditary risk of cancer. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely occasions where it's worth looking at. Um, and I think it's always worth looking at unless, like I said, you're kind of on your track for a curative intent type of treatment already, and then you probably don't have to look too hard. Right, yeah. I, I think clinical trials are outstanding in certain cases, and you, like you said, some have uh, saved lives. Um, so it's really great to be able to have a clinical trial as a potential resource uh, if you're struggling with a, a difficult diagnosis and a difficult prognosis. Now, where can people find out more about you and your work, Dr. Kayser? Do you have a website that you'd like to share? Sure, sure. My website is Roundtable Cancer Care. Um, and uh, I try to tweet interesting and useful information. And my Twitter feed is on that website as well if you're not a a Twitter kind of person, but I, I do have it linked on there, so it just kind of feeds into it, and I'm hoping to reach people and help them out that way. And my newest endeavor is actually a podcast called The Cancer Pod. Um, my good friend Leah and I are going to talk about all things cancer-related, and uh, that can be found on Instagram and on nearly every podcast platform out there. Um, and then lastly, my last name is pretty unique, so you can Google Tina Kazer if you spell it correctly, K-A-C-Z-O-R, and the and a cancer type you're interested in, and if I've written on it or talked about it in the last 20 years, hopefully Google pops it up and you can kind of get some information that way. Because everything I do is really geared towards helping um, people, their families, and prevention and, and treatment of cancer. So it's been a couple decades, so hopefully there's some good stuff out there. Well, yeah, I know there there's a lot of great stuff out there. So it's Roundtable Cancer Care 
Uh, the Cancer Pod. Good for you. That's great. Um, yeah, and, and just uh, search Dr. Kazer, K-A-C-Z-O-R, uh, wealth of information. Thank you again, Dr. Kazer, for joining me and talking about this important subject. Always a pleasure, Carolyn. I'll be here anytime. All right, that sounds good. Well, that wraps up this episode of Five to Thrive Live. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Cetria Glutathione, the master antioxidant, and Dr. O'Hara's high-quality probiotics. All right, everyone, may you experience joy, laughter, and love. It's time to thrive, everyone. Have a great night.